This is the Whole Hog Podcast, presented by Massage Envy. Here's Matt Jones. If you subscribe to this podcast channel, you know we usually have sports-specific podcasts. We've got the Whole Hog Football Podcast, the Whole Hog Baseball Podcast, the Basketball Podcast of Mid-America. We just thought we'd take an opportunity this summer to talk about what's going on in Razorback Athletics. This isn't a sport-specific podcast. We'll just call it the Whole Hog Podcast. I'm Matt Jones. I'm with Andrew Joseph today and Ethan Westerman of Whole Hog Sports. I think we're the only people left in town. Everybody else has gone away for the 4th of July. Scotty Bordelon somewhere off in the middle of the Caribbean. Bob Holtz riding thoroughbreds up in Kentucky. And guys, we're left behind uh, getting ready for the 4th of July weekend. It has been a big week news-wise for the Razorbacks. A little bit more newsworthy than I think we typically have this time of year. And of course, the, the biggest news of the week was the, the tragic death of Brian Mallett earlier this week on uh, the coast of the Gulf of Mexico in Destin, Florida, an apparent drowning. Uh, it's just a, a very sad deal. And, you know, I know that I view Ryan Mallett differently than the two of you guys because I covered him. Ethan, you and I were talking this week. You view him in, in a totally different way because this was one of the, the guys that you looked up to growing up. Yeah, no, Ryan Mallett was the first just really good quarterback of the Razorbacks while I, you know, was a, I think I was in maybe like the fifth or sixth grade whenever he was playing. So he was kind of, he was my first Jersey actually I ever got. I mean, being from hot Springs, Arkansas, um, you know, the Razorbacks are the pro team and Ryan Mallett was like the first one that I was like, I really want to get his Jersey. And so it was actually, I think the summer going into the fifth grade, um, my mom, she kind of did this some summers going into the school year. She would be like, okay, like in July, like each kid gets like a certain amount of money to go and we'll go get like new clothes. Right. Um, and she, uh, but you know, a Ryan Mallet Jersey took a big chunk out of, you know, the little pot of money that I had to go get some new clothes for the school year. But he was like that kind of that big in my eyes that I was like, I want to make sure I get a Ryan Mallet Jersey. So I did that. Um, I had the white, 15 jersey um and i think i probably wore that at school um it was probably like in the weekly rotation you know like i probably overwore that thing but yeah it's just kind of it, it hit me you know whenever the passing of uh kobe bryant happened a couple years ago that one hit me and it, it kind of in a similar way of just it's no death is ever expected of course but it's just whenever they're you know i don't know how old kobe was but definitely just like a tragic incident that happened it but just two people who i i feel like as a child they were kind of larger than life for me um so yeah it i'm sure it's a lot different for me and andrew than it, than it is for you having been someone who covered him but definitely um like i said one of the first just like athletes that i feel like i i ended they were bigger than life to me so a really mm -hmm. sad situation mallet was 35 still in the prime of his life andrew you grew up in illinois uh what, what were your perceptions of Ryan Mallett as a college player yeah so so growing up I really had no affiliation with the the Razorbacks or the University of Arkansas until I went to school here but I was a, a, always a huge college football fan and the Ryan Mallett era of of the University of Arkansas kind of put them on the map for me and that was kind of when I really got into started following football uh, so I thought you know he just kind of embodied the, the Razorback program during that time. And I thought he kind of put them on the map for me. And then you could tell how much he meant to the state of Arkansas as a whole, uh, just this, the amount of support that, that he's gotten. Uh, and, and I think it's just kind of one of those things where 
the Razorbacks are the the lifeblood of this state. And so when you lose someone like that who meant as much as he did to the program and to the state, it kind of uh, stings a tough, tragic situation, obviously, all the way around. I think you can make the, the case that if it were not for Darren McFadden playing right before him, that Ryan Mallett would have been considered the greatest Arkansas football player of, of his generation. I mean, there are others that, that certainly you could make a case for, but, uh, you know, just the, I don't know, it, it, you think of, you have to go back and kind of put yourself in your shoes in 2009 and think where the program was at that time. And you know, you're coming off of, of the Houston nut era where it's, a, you know, a very run heavy offense, you go into the Petrino era and even though Mallet didn't play in 2008, I think that him being on the roster in 2008 really helped them as they built the, the core of that team that won all those games in, in Petrino's last two years. And what I mean by that is, you know, Joe Adams. I don't know that they get Joe Adams to come to Arkansas if they don't have an elite quarterback like Ryan Mallett that's that's waiting there to, you know, be his quarterback. Because you think about in those days – you had to wait until February to sign your letter of intent. It wasn't like it is now where you sign your letters of intent in December before Christmas time. And if I remember everything correctly, and I think I've got this right, I think Mallet committed to Arkansas in January. And then, you know, they, they had some verbal commitments intact at that point, but I just think maybe it helped solidify some of their decisions. Some of these, you know, bigger time players like a Joe Adams, uh, maybe a Greg Childs, who was part of that class, or Chris Gregg, who was part of that class. I'm not saying they came to Arkansas because of Ryan Mallett. They might have. But I, I just think uh, Jarius Wright's another one who I, I just think that, you know, that class really seemed to fill in nicely after he made his commitment to Arkansas. And then, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and, and what they're doing in the passing game in 2009 and 2010, and even after he left when Tyler Wilson was their quarterback, it was so far different from anything that you had seen at Arkansas up until that point in time, uh, you know, you'd, you'd have to go back to the sixties or seventies with Bill Montgomery and Joe Ferguson to find an Arkansas passing game. That was that good. And even then they weren't throwing the ball nearly like they were during the Petrino years. And so it was just such a, a transformative time. And you think about the success that they had, uh, they, they came really close to beating the number one ranked team both years that Ryan Mallett was their starting quarterback, the 2009 game in Florida, where you had the, the controversies from the officiating standpoint at the end of the game, uh, they lose that one on a field goal as time expires, 2010, everybody remembers the Alabama game where they had them on the ropes and uh, let them kind of escape Fayetteville with a win at the end of that one, uh, but they had some great wins during that time too. Uh, the the first game when I was in this role, now I covered the Razorbacks beforehand, but when I was in the job that I'm in right now, uh, the, the first game that I covered was at Georgia in 2010 when Mallett throws a 40-yard touchdown pass to Greg Childs with 15 seconds remaining. And just the, the, the joy of those players coming off the field at Stanford Stadium and just how almost bigger than life Mallett felt uh, coming off the field there in Athens, you know, that's, that's one of the memories I can remember standing in the tunnel and watching the players come in and talking to the sugar bowl representative who was in little rock when they beat LSU in 2010 at war Memorial stadium. Those are great, great wins in program history. And you don't get those wins without a Ryan Mallett. And I don't, you know, you don't get the top five ranking in 2011, even though he was gone, I don't think you get to that point. Had he not helped lay that foundation for Bobby Petrino in those years. And, you know, so it's, uh, you know, we're talking about this from a football standpoint. 
you know, from a football standpoint and a college football standpoint in particular, uh, he's one of the great players that Arkansas has ever had. And it's, it's a real tragedy, I think, to, to see what happened to him, not only, you know, because he was in the prime of his life, but, you know, because I think that, uh, you know, from all indications, people who talked to him, Clay Henry wrote something, uh, a great piece on him recently in our Hogs Illustrated magazine uh, that was uh, so, so timely in light of, of his passing that we were able to get these, you know, kind of these thoughts on, you know, just his life and his maturity and uh, from Mallet himself so, so soon before his death. But he said, I'm 35 now. I feel like I'm a man. I'm halfway to 70. Uh, you know, he, he talked about, he said, I, I was a kid. I feel like I've grown up. And he really felt like he had found his calling coaching the Whitehall High School football team. And, uh, you know, you feel bad for that team, certainly. Uh, not just Mallet, they've, they've had two tragedies at Whitehall over the last couple of months. They had a, a senior football player who was shot and killed uh, just a month before Ryan Mallet died. And so, uh, you know, rambling a little bit, guys, but, you know, th those are just some of the thoughts that I have about Ryan Mallet. Such a, uh, you know, just such a tragic event. And, and you hate to see that happen uh, to anyone. And, you know, one other thought is that the, the players on those 2009 and 2010 teams, they have experienced a lot of tragedy. Uh, in the past few years, you think about Mitch Petras and, and the, you know, his death at such a young age, a few years back of heat stroke in Eastern Arkansas, or uh, even earlier this year, Chris Smith died. Uh, that was certainly uh, not expected. Uh, and so many members of those teams also lived through the death of Garrett Ekman on the 2011 team. And so uh, they, they have really been through it. Uh, the, the players on those teams. Yeah, it definitely seems like, um, just in the recent years it's just been kind of hit after hit um just tragic situations happening i mean and even earlier this year just peyton hillis was fighting for his life nearly drowning yeah um, that's right it's just it's just been a really um really really i think tough season for a lot of people um it's just it feels like um it feels like each month there's something new um just if it's not like a former not a former football player. I mean, I didn't in 2020, Lindsey Howell, who was just inducted into the Hall of Honor at the U of A, um, or selected to be inducted in September, he um, he passed away. It's just, it's it feels like a lot of these uh, deaths here in recent years just have, uh, it's been a lot of people who've meant a lot to the program. And of course, Ryan Mallett this past week, I think this one has just kind of been, um, this one just kind of, I think, embodies how tough of a, past few years it's been with the desk just had the magnitude of this one I feel like just um like you said with uh Clay's piece that he wrote recently just how um he was had really found his calling it seemed like and I think he he was at Whitehall shortly after being at Mountain Home um mm -hmm. high school and it's just like I think he was just so uh excited about this chapter um being a coach and like you said it's just really tragic um what all has happened in the Whitehall community recently, um, just with the passing. I believe that the, the senior football player who passed away, it was either the day before or maybe the day he was expected to graduate. Um, yeah, the day before. It's just just really tragic, um, just awful. Um, but I think it's like Andrew mentioned earlier, just seeing the way the state has kind of reacted to this. It goes to show just the, the impact that he had on a state and um, the way that he – I mean, those football teams were just fun to watch with Ryan Mallett. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was it was the first time just really sling the ball around the field, and it felt like if anybody's open, it doesn't matter where on the field, Ryan Mallett can get it to him. So, um, yeah, it's just been a 
a tough season with a lot of great Razorbacks tragically passing away. You mentioned Peyton Hillis six months ago, uh, a near drowning accident in the Gulf of Mexico with him. He was able to survive, spoke about it recently on Good Morning America. One difference between those, uh, the authorities in Florida this week said that Ryan Mallett's uh, drowning was not caused by uh, a rip current uh, that's been in the news lately a lot, the, the rip currents <clears throat> and the, the number of deaths in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Peyton Hillis, uh, his situation was the result in some ways of a rip current that had pulled his child and and his niece out into the to the ocean he went out and uh, tried to rescue them so a little bit different circumstance there between the two of them but but certainly uh you know just given the proximity between those two beaches Destin and Pensacola uh, you know very very ironic for that to happen in, in such a short amount of time with two Great Razorback football players who, who both also made a name for themselves in the NFL. Uh, turning the page a little bit as we talk more about Razorback football, um, we haven't had a chance to talk about this schedule release that came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the 2024 football schedule is out, and you're going to see a little bit different scheduling moving forward now. We don't know if it's going to be an eight-game schedule or a nine-game schedule long-term. For 24, it is going to be eight games and for Arkansas, they get to add Texas. They'll play Texas at home, and they get to lose Alabama off their schedule. It'll be the first time uh, since 1991 that Arkansas has not played a football game against Alabama. So do you think it's a bigger thing that Arkansas gets to play Texas and all of the season tickets and the hype that that's going to present? Or do you think it's a bigger deal that Arkansas doesn't have to play Alabama in 24? In my opinion, I think that not having Alabama on the schedules bigger as far as wins and losses go. I mean, that is just, they haven't been able to beat them. And I don't even know how many years it's been now since the last time they beat Alabama. So 2006, as far as the wins loss standpoint goes, I think that that Alabama um, not having Alabama on the schedule is by far bigger toward that. But I think that having Texas come in at home, the first year of having, um, you know, Texas and Oklahoma in the league is kind of bigger in a sense of it just, I think it helps solidify that it's actually happening with Texas and OU. I think that if, if you played one of them on the road that first year, it just might feel a little bit, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just going to be so much hype coming into Fayetteville having not only just Texas coming in, but having Texas, Tennessee, Ole Miss and LSU be your four opponents that come in. I think it just really, at least for me watching the schedule really show like it was kind of like, Oh yeah, Texas and Oklahoma will be coming into the sec, but then seeing, you know, kind of just that really unique um, batch coming in for the home slate in 2024 with uh, those are some big games. And so I think those are kind of bigger on a standpoint of it's, it's definitely a memorable first year schedule. Um, But as far as wins and losses go, I think, you know, of course not having Alabama on the schedule and not having Georgia, um, is really big for the team. And I also, I'd mentioned that um, the the away schedule is pretty favorable too, in my opinion, especially considering that you'll have Texas A&M. That game will be in Arlington. So that's one of your four road games. And then your other three are Auburn, Mississippi State, and Missouri. I just think that Arkansas got a pretty favorable draw. Yeah, I think getting Alabama off the schedule is is a bigger deal. Uh, Just just because I think the Texas game would be a bigger deal had they not just played the Longhorns a couple years ago. Um, and so I think that kind of 
lessens the intrigue a little bit. Obviously, it's still going to be a big game. Uh, but I think removing Alabama is probably something that everyone within the Arkansas program is thankful for and having to not play them again. Uh, and and I think I think there's a, a consensus within the Razorback fan base that Arkansas hasn't always got the easiest draws when it comes to scheduling. Uh, and so I think removing a heavyweight Alabama team is a step in the right direction for that. Now, a lot of people think Arkansas get the short end of the stick when it comes to scheduling. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. And I think it's hard to sit here in the summer of 23 before we see what happens this next year. Obviously, we're talking about the football season after that to, to really say that, you know, this team's easy or this team's hard. We don't know what teams are going to look like. Things can change so quickly in college football, especially in the SEC, especially in this age of uh, NIL and, and, and unlimited transfers where uh, you can change your team really quickly. So, but I think to Ethan's point, one thing that does stand out to me is that they only played three road games in 2024 from an SEC perspective. They'll also play at Oklahoma State that year. Uh, we didn't know if the Texas A&M game was going to get salvaged for 2024. Hunter Yurchek earlier this month, whenever he was speaking at a, a luncheon here in Fayetteville, uh, he said the only guarantee that they'd been given was that they were going to play Missouri in 2024 because in an eight-game schedule, Missouri is going to be on Arkansas' schedule every year. If it's a nine-game schedule, Arkansas will play Missouri and Texas and Ole Miss every year. Uh, but they didn't know if they were going to get to play A&M. That will be the last year of the A&M contract in Arlington. And then whenever those teams play, because it won't be on an annual basis after that, but when they do play, it's going to move back to campus, either in Fayetteville or in College Station. I think both of those teams are are very – happy to get uh, the contract in Arlington off of the books. Although I will say as someone who goes down there every year and covers it, uh, that's a, I understand it, it kind of hurts both programs. It kind of hamstrings them a little bit in terms of, you know, being able to get recruits on your campus. It, it hurts you some and in, in the revenue that you lose from not having an on-campus game, but I like that game. And uh, I, you know, I know that I'm probably in the minority, but I'll be a little sad uh, to see that game go away. I think that, yeah. You know I mean? I mean, it's it's a fun game. You guys both been down there. It's, uh, you know, I, I think that the people who dog the game are maybe the people who haven't got that tradition of going to it, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, I've always thought that Arkansas A&M and Arlington, if you give it, you know, you give it time, it could uh, turn into maybe something like what we see with OU and Texas at the at the State Fair in Dallas or, you know, the cocktail party between Georgia and Florida. The difference between those two games and what we've seen with Arkansas and A&M is that Arkansas A&M always had an expiration date. And so it was never necessarily embraced because it feels like both of the the fan bases have been counting down to the end of the Arlington game. And certainly, you know, the, the administration has changed within both of those programs, whether it be the head coaches or the athletic directors who you know, put the wheels in motion for that game to be played. And so that changes things too, because uh, Hunter Juracek thinks about the game in Dallas might be different than Jeff Long. Same thing goes for A&M. What Ross Bjork thinks is, is different than what Bill Byrne thought whenever they put that game in place. So, uh, you know, like I said, little, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of hate to see it go away, but I, I certainly understand that it's beneficial for both of the programs to go away. Uh, one thing I was going to mention about the 24 schedule that stands out to me is the history that Arkansas has with so many of these teams that are going to play. You got Texas A&M and you got Texas, uh, both longtime games going back into the Southwest conference. By the time 24 rolls around, I think they'll have played A&M 80 times. They'll have played 
Texas 77 times. You've got LSU and Ole Miss, which were a long time, not conference games. Even before Arkansas came to the SEC, you know, you're talking about somewhere around 70 times they played those teams. Uh, Tennessee, there's history there with Tennessee, both in and out of the SEC. Uh, and then you get Oklahoma State back on the schedule, which I don't know that a lot of people, uh, you know, who are of a certain age and younger realize, but Arkansas, Oklahoma State used to play just about every year. It was the season opener for those teams a lot of times. I think they would do two for one where they'd play in Little Rock twice and then they'd play in Stillwater. And they're going to play Oklahoma State in 2024 over in Stillwater in the second game of the season. Uh, that's a that's a neat game to get on the schedule, I think, given the proximity between those two teams. Yeah, no, I think that's one that will – Razorback fans will travel well for that one for sure. It's not too far away. Um, it's early in the season. Both teams, I mean, unless the Razorbacks lay an egg against UAPB, should be 1-0 headed into that. And, you know, <laughs> it's just that time of year whenever, you know, everybody, all fan bases convince themselves that it's kind of their year and they can do it. So I think that's going to be a really nice uh, – it's going to be, of course, a, a great atmosphere, I think, for early in the year. And um, and yeah, I think that across the SEC, you know, going into the eight or nine game SEC schedule, it kind of came to like the people were asking like, oh, you're you're scared of playing as many good games if you're only doing eight. But looking across the board at the games that non-conference games that these SEC teams have, I mean, Arkansas is at Oklahoma State. I think I saw Florida is playing Florida State and Miami that year. Mm -hmm. It's just I I think that once I like seeing the actual schedules come into fruition for 2024, combining those conference opponents with non-conference, I'm not so sure. I think that a nine game SEC schedule really does too much. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think whenever you pair it with still having the non uh, or the power five non-conference opponent added, I think most teams still have a pretty difficult schedule. Um, so I'm not sure I understand too much the people who are just super adamant that nine games will make your schedule just mm -hmm. that much more difficult. Well, I'll tell you what the, the eight game schedule does, because we, we don't know if they're going to play non-conference games, or I should say, we don't know that they're going to play big time non-conference games if the SEC goes to a nine game schedule. And I think that's one of the real big sticking points right now is do you want to make your schedule do you want to make all of your marquee games against conference teams or do you want this variety that the non-conference games adds? And then of course teams have scheduled their non-conference out for so far. I mean, you look at Arkansas, they're scheduled through, I think 2033 that how do you work around all of these contracts? Arkansas has been proactive. They put some language in their contracts that uh, they think can get them out of playing uh, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm just using this as a hypothetical. It could get them out of playing Utah because there's some language in the contract that says if the SEC expands to a, uh, you know, requires us to play more games, uh, then we might, you know, th this this contract could potentially be void. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with some of these, but, you know, Ethan's point, 2024, these are just some of the games that stand out to me. We already mentioned Arkansas at Oklahoma State. You've got Alabama at Wisconsin. You've got Georgia against Clemson. You've got LSU against Southern Cal in Las Vegas. UCLA goes to LSU. Uh, these aren't all the games, by the way. These are just some of the ones that, that really stand out to me. Uh, Tennessee plays North Carolina State in Charlotte. Texas, who will be an SEC member by then, goes to the big house and plays Michigan. Texas A&M hosts Notre Dame. Vanderbilt hosts Virginia Tech. You can't get those types of matchups by adding – 
eight more SEC games during the course of the season. And in a lot of these cases, you're going to play better teams at a conference than you might if you add a ninth SEC game. I agree. And I think that what keeps on getting brought up is all these other conferences play nine conference games. But I believe that if you add another SEC game to every team's schedule, so if Arkansas is playing nine opponents instead of eight, you're losing the intrigue of these good non-conference games because I think at that point, if you're playing an extra, let's just use 2024, for example, for Arkansas, say Kentucky gets out of the schedule and do you eliminate Oklahoma State or do you eliminate your UAB or UAPB? Because I think that if you, I just I just think that you're losing the intrigue of these big non-conference games that end up by the end of the year, whenever you're putting together the college football playoff rankings, I think those matchups go a long way in determining kind of conference weight. Um, So I I just don't know if I see, I I think that people are trying to make the comparison to SEC needs to have nine games because these other conferences do, but I don't think you can compare the SEC to the, let's say big 10, for example. I think that one game against, you know, LSU on your schedule is more, should have more weight to your schedule than playing who knows, you know, Indiana and Northwestern. I just think that the SEC is a little bit different. And if you keep that power five game, non-conference game on your schedule, I think an eight game SEC with a power five uh, non-conference is still a more difficult schedule than adding nine. If the, if the question is, if we want more difficult schedules. One other football item before we move on, uh, they announced this week, or we already knew this was going to happen. Hunter Yurichek talked about this during that same chamber of commerce luncheon that I've saw, that I referenced earlier. Uh, but this big reds rooftop bar on the north end of Razorback Stadium, uh, basically the, it's the same concept that they use at the baseball park with Mackey's base at the loaded landing up in the right field corner. That's going to be an area that it's going to add about 250 seats inside the stadium. Now it's going to be some standing room only areas uh, within that area too, but it's just kind of a new concept to watch football. And I think they're trying to to find new ways to uh, find new views and obviously new revenue streams uh, for their football games. This looks like uh, if, if I wasn't sitting up above the Z in the press box every Saturday, this looks like a place that might be kind of fun to go down and check out. Yeah, I think that I also uh, referencing, you know, the speech that Hunter Yurichek gave, um, he mentioned how they're, they might try and uh, just make some big events happen on Friday evenings before the games. I know in the past couple of years, since they started lighting the stadium red the night before, that's kind of a tradition that's taken off. I think once they add, um, you know, these events happening there on Friday nights, it's kind of, it's just a new tradition that's happening. And I think that it has a lot of potential. I know as a call, as a recent college grad, uh, definitely <laughs> it intrigues me. It sounds like something that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think what's sort of becoming a theme for me and my thoughts throughout this podcast is that I'm starting to think that I'd, I'd like enjoying all the uniqueness of, of everything, whether it be mm. the the non-conference games, uh, Power 5 non-conference games are unique. I like those. Uh, the Southwest Classic is not uh, your your uh, standard conference game. I like that, uh, the uniqueness of that. And then obviously this is kind of a, a – newer way to get people into the stadium to to get people watching the game and i and i'm all for it i think it's going to be uh an entertaining outlet for for fans to enjoy the game in a different capacity uh rather than you know if they don't want to just sit uh in stands and, and watch a game you can hang out drink some uh, drinks eat some food and i think it'll be enjoyable for everyone 
and watch other games. So I think that's really one of the big draws to that area that they're going to have all these TVs around it. And so, you know, if you're watching Arkansas beat FIU by 20 points in the third quarter, uh, you can turn around and you can watch the, you know, whatever big game is, is going on at the same time. Uh, I think that that's a, a big, big draw. I, I do like the forward thinking, and this kind of segues into what we're about to talk about with basketball, but the forward thinking of, trying to find new ways to watch a game in without building a new uh, venue. And, and when I say that segues, uh, we're going to talk about Bud Walton Arena here. The board of trustees approved this week, uh, the general contractor, the architects, to really spend about the next six, seven months looking at what Bud Walton Arena could look like after renovation. We know renovation is coming. How big of a renovation is it going to be at the basketball arena? is to be seen uh, what we know is that they believe that they've got a lot of mechanical and electrical issues that they need to get fixed they need to put a new roof on the building they need to replace uh, the surface uh, the, the floor a lot of people don't realize this that's the original surface that was put down inside the arena 30 years ago they sand it down they put new um, you know new paint on it and, and new designs but that's still the original surface uh, that was put inside bud walton arena kind of a relic to, to be honest with you not very many arenas have a, a surface that, that is that old they have surfaces that are able to be picked up and moved and uh, you can't do that with the floor that's a permanent floor inside the arena right now you know so if it's a, a small scale renovation where they take care of just the back of house things that are needed uh, the cost right now is, is thought to be somewhere in the 45 to 50 million range what is most likely to happen, and I think we all know this, is that there's going to be a capital uh, project to raise funds for renovation of Bud Walton Arena. Uh, Scott Verity, who just recently left the Razorback Foundation, he told the Board of Trustees a few months back that you know, it's probably going to be somewhere in the $125 million capital campaign. And, you know, we're going to see Arkansas really go all out and, you know, change some things up inside Bud Walton Arena. So basically, there's three phases that they're going to, or three different scenarios that these uh, that these people who are going to work on this project the rest of the year are going to explore. One is the basic uh, renovations that are needed. Like I mentioned, the roof, the floor, electrical, mechanical. Number two would be the addition of loads boxes and some club areas and, and overhauling the existing suites that are in the arena that other than some paint jobs really haven't been touched a whole lot since the arena was built 30 years ago. And then the third phase would include both of the phase one and phase two and the third scenario would include the possibility of making bud walton arena into a multi-purpose venue where you can bring in concerts you can bring in you know some different events that bypass northwest arkansas right now because the venue that could potentially host them just isn't in a position to host them you know i've heard them talk about there's uh the the area at the the loading deck at the back of the arena can only fit one 18 wheeler you want to fit three of them nowadays with some of these events. And you know, so these are some of the things that are going to be thought about, but it goes back to the original point that they're looking for new ways uh, to make Bud Walton Arena uh, a place that's an experience to go watch an event, whether it be a basketball game, a gymnastics meet, the gymnastics team is going to move in there full time at some point in the coming years, or maybe a George Strait concert. Yeah. Talking about new revenue streams, uh, I'd be interested to see if they do, if what they do replace the um, 
the playing surface, how much, you know, squares of that will sell for. Cut that up. Yeah, you probably sell that for pretty good. That reminds me of a story. Uh, my in-laws, they were building a house several years ago, and they, they had to rent one. And went into the garage of this rent house, and up on the wall was this big 50 in, like, turf. It's like, well, what is that? Come to find out, it was they had it was the cutout inside the stadium. You know, so they like they have to cut out the numbers, and then they put these white pieces down so you can tell what yard line you're at. And whoever whoever had owned this house, they'd actually gone to the stadium and said, "Hey, can I have the fifty from midfield?" Sure, gave it to him. He went and he tacked it up on the wall in his garage. It's amazing to me how some of those things. Uh, I have a feeling that to your point, Ethan, the the floor would probably be up on somebody's wall or, or quite a few bit of quite a few people's walls. Yeah. I mean, it's a, if it's the original playing surface, uh, you have so many, uh, Razorback greats who have played on that, on that floor. Mm. So I think that that would just sell for a phenomenal amount of price. I think you'd see people trying to get the piece of, uh, hardwood autographed by players whenever <laughs> they could, I think it would turn into a pretty cool thing, but yeah, I, that's crazy to me that that's the original surface. I just think that's so rare probably in today's scope of, uh, of, you know, major college basketball. I feel like everybody's getting new arenas, new floors. Bud Walton Arena has been around a while now, I believe. The 30th birthday coming up. So 30th. Yep. that's 30 years of uh, of a lot of great players who have played on that floor. Yeah, just this week, Arkansas, it was announced that they're going to play Duke in the upcoming season. It's going to be played on November 29th. And I was talking to Bob Holt about this when he was writing his story a couple of days ago. He said, well, you know, I'm going to write about this. It's the 30-year the anniversary of Arkansas beating Duke. And I, I started thinking, I said, Bob, what's the date? November 29th. I said, you might look and see if that's the 30-year anniversary of the first game. And lo and behold, it was. They beat Murray State on November 30th, 1990, or I'm sorry, November 29th, 1993. Now they had the dedication game a few nights later against Missouri. That's the big 52-point route that everybody seems to remember. Uh, but this Duke game will be played on the 30-year anniversary of Bud Walton Arena's first game. And that seems kind of fitting because I don't know that there's been a non-conference game in Bud Walton that has been as big as this game against Duke is going to be. They've had some they've had some teams come through here. You think about the Syracuse game a number of years ago was a big one. Uh, they had Arizona come through early in the, you know, early early on when Bud Walton Arena was built. I remember a Cincinnati game when they were really good and Bill Clinton attended the game, but I just don't remember one that was as big or is going to be as hyped up probably as this Arkansas Duke one is going to be, especially because it's so early in the year. Yeah. And I'd figure that, I mean, they're going to not only be celebrating 30 years of Bud Walton arena being um, open, they'll be celebrating. If I'm not mistaken. It should be the 30 year anniversary of the national championship team as well. So I'm sure That's they'll right. have a lot of um, commemorative things going on all season. So I just think that game having that in the non-conference, it comes right. Is it, it's either right before or right after the battle for Atlantis. Right after. Um, so It'll probably I, their first game after returning from the Bahamas would be my guess. Yeah. So that game, it, it, I mean, the field in the Bahamas, I'm not sure how all those teams will be, but let's just say for instance, they go down there and they have a strong showing and return home to play Duke. I just think that has the, the potential to be the best environment that arena's maybe seen in non-conference at least. I know that there's been some great games against, you know, your Kentuckys of the world and conference play, but I'm not sure that there's a game that this been played there um, in that arena non-conference that will pack as much punch as this one. 
Well, and just think about this. Think about the teams that are in the Bahamas. You got North Carolina in the Bahamas. There, there's a a chance that Arkansas could play North Carolina and Duke within a one week window. That's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, back on my point about it being the 30 year anniversary of the national championship team, I think that you'll probably have a lot of hype videos and stuff on the scoreboard uh, before the game. <laughs> maybe with some flashbacks to that. It just has the opportunity to be maybe. I mean, I'd have to look around the nation and other games but i mean i think it has to be up there but it might be the premier non-conference college basketball game looking ahead to this season i think a lot of people believe it's the best in the acc sec challenge duke uh, they are coming off a season where i believe they went 27 and 9 under john shire in his first season uh, they return a number of their players they've got a highly rated recruiting class i've seen uh, some of these way too early basketball polls have got duke as the number one team in the preseason, you know, Andrew, I know you pay a lot of attention to basketball. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so when the announced the matchup got announced, I saw a bunch of reaction from Razorback fans that you know Duke was gonna see the best environment college basketball has to offer in Bud Walton Arena, and and talking a lot about how that basically Duke hadn't played in in an environment that Bud Walton Arena is gonna give them, and so I started looking more into it, and I was shocked to find that Cameron Indoor's capacity is nine thousand. Mm-hmm. That just yeah. seems incredibly small. It's kind of like Barnhill. Yeah, and that yeah, I mean, I mean that was shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an intimate arena. It it, it was built. I mean, it's it's an older arena than Barnhill, but it's kind of you know the arenas in those days. I think a lot of them were built kind of in that style of you know real, real tightly packed in seats. And uh, you know the thing about Duke is that, and and they're not the only team. UNC is like this for the most part. Uh, KU, Kansas is like this, Kentucky even to a certain extent, they don't go on the road unless they have to go on the road. You know, So obviously they go on the road for their conference games or they go on the road when their conference says, hey, we're going to play in this conference challenge and it's your year uh, to be a road team. Syracuse was the same way. You know, I remember when they came in here several years ago for the, I think it was the SEC Big East Challenge at that point. Uh, you know, there was so much talk about Jim Beheim just does not take his team on the road. He doesn't doesn't challenge them on the road early in the year, and so it's such a rarity to see these teams like a like a Duke go outside of the ACC to any other arena. It just doesn't happen because what they do, you know, you see the Champions Classic early in the year that has Duke and Kentucky and Kansas and Michigan State. Well, they get a big payday for going and playing in that at a neutral site, or you know that may you know, all of these teams are going to go play in one of those big multi-team events early in the year, like the battle for Atlantis that Ethan mentioned earlier. You know, you see Kentucky, I think they play in that CBS sports classic every year. That's got UCLA and Ohio state and North Carolina. But the, you know, the point is that they just don't play road games very often outside of their conference games. And I think that's one of the really neat aspects of this game is that you just, you just don't see Duke go on the road like this. Yeah, and I think that just the way that this first year, the ACC-SEC challenge, how it's shaping up, I mean, whoever was going to draw Duke, if Duke was going to be the road team, I mean, they'd sell out the arena. And just the fact that they're getting sent on the road to one of the best basketball environments in the in the nation against a team that's been in three straight Sweet 16s and is Arkansas, uh, you know, there's that history with them against Duke. I mean, it's just setting up to be it, that just feels like the premier game of this entire challenge. And I think it's exciting to see, you know, Duke, how will they handle an environment like Bud Walton arena in the non-conference? 
Andrew, I know you and Scotty talk a lot about this on the basketball podcast of Mid-America, but just the evolution of Arkansas as a program, I don't know that you would have gotten an Arkansas-Duke matchup five years ago because the perception of Arkansas basketball was a lot different then than it is now. But now you've got an Arkansas that, you know, they're this is three years in a row where they've made a run to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. They're recruiting at a high level. They're bringing in a McDonald's All-American this year in Bay Fall, another big time project or a, a big time prospect with a uh, uh, laden blocker they go out and they get you know some of the the top names on the transfer market every year to me it it indicates that the national perception of arkansas has changed for them to be able to draw a team like duke in an event like this that is i mean quite frankly it's made for tv yeah i would absolutely agree i think Eric Musselman put Arkansas basketball on in the national spotlight. And obviously it starts with the NCAA tournament runs, but you also have the elite recruiting. He's getting guys, uh, uh, high profile players in from freshman recruits to transfer portal guys. He's just, they've, they've put themselves in, in a, in a great spot with, with recruiting and winning. And that's what it takes to get to the next level. And Arkansas has done that under Eric Musselman. And I think you're absolutely right. Had they not uh, been so successful in past seasons, I don't think you get the Arkansas Duke matchup. And it's certainly not a matchup that would be uh, as intriguing as it is, as it, as it is now, if Arkansas uh, had not um, kind of put themselves on the map. You remember the Alabama game earlier this year at Bud Walton uh, when they had the, uh, the FAA had its computer crash that, that day, and it, it messed everything up. Carl Ravitch couldn't get to Fable. You had Jimmy Dykes and Jay Billis call the game. Oh, I yeah. think they ought to redo that this year. You know, Billis <laughs> played at Duke. Dykes played at Arkansas. That might be kind of a fun uh, fun, fun thing to recreate for Arkansas and Duke. I, I uh, hope they go be on all the out. ESPN network. Yeah, it'd be, it, it'll definitely be something to look forward to. And uh, it's I know we're already looking forward to it. And gosh, here we are. We're still four and a half, almost five months away from that night we got way more basketball talk on the other side of our break we're also going to talk about Razorback baseball Ethan covers Razorback softball some big news in the softball world this week we'll be back on the whole hog podcast Wholehogsports.com has the largest, most experienced staff of reporters covering sports in Arkansas. Football, basketball, baseball, recruiting, and more. You'll find it at wholehogsports.com. The website includes up-to-minute news, daily commentaries, and award-winning photography from the staffs of Hogs Illustrated and the Democrat Gazette. For subscriptions, call 1-800-757-6277. That's 1-800-757-6277. Or visit us online today. Wholehogsports.com. Want more coverage of your home team? Download the Whole Hog Sports Video On Demand app. Check out the Fan Zone and get up-to-the-minute videos, podcasts, and features on football, basketball, baseball, recruiting, and more. Search for Whole Hog Sports on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire at home. And take it with you on the go by downloading it for your mobile device in your app store. The Whole Hog Sports Video On Demand app. Get it today. You mentioned basketball scheduling. Arkansas, another big scheduling uh, announcement this week was the SEC opponents for the upcoming season. We still don't know the dates, but we do know that Arkansas is going to play Kentucky twice again in SEC play during the 23-24 season. They played Kentucky twice last year. The road team won both games. Arkansas went and won big at Rupp. Kentucky came back and uh, won the regular season finale at Bud Walton. Uh, this It's kind of rare because – up until last year, Arkansas and Kentucky had only played once during the regular season, one time. 
since the Razorbacks joined the SEC. Now, there have been a lot of years where they played multiple times because they played a regular season game, and then they played at the SEC tournament. But this is back-to-back years now where we see Arkansas play Kentucky, and I don't know what to make of that other than, hey, good for Arkansas and Kentucky because that is a fun matchup to watch. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, it's kind of – it's very strange, you know, to have Kentucky twice in a row, um, you know, this many years in a row. And I think that, um, yeah, it's just, it's one of the premier rivalries. And I mean, in a conference like the SEC, that's, you know, primarily known for football. Um, I think that some of these, you know, historic basketball rivalries like Arkansas and Kentucky, it is nice for fans. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, people within the, within the team would <laughs> are too big of a fan of playing Kentucky twice, you know, as far as, uh, you know, trying to finish toward the top of the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a win for the fans, I think, and a win for probably, you know, your television audiences. Uh, just one of the few, I feel like, historic rivalries in the SEC. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago when Kentucky came to Fayetteville, I think it was the, the, the game went to overtime. It was on CBS. It was the third most watched game of the year in college basketball outside of the games uh, during March Madness. So it, it's still, even though it's a, a, a game that I think a lot of people remember for what happened during the nineties because of what these programs are, you know, have, have kind of shaped themselves into now. Uh, it, it's still a game that, that draws a lot of eyeballs. Uh, again, we don't know the the schedule for the SEC games. We just know that Arkansas is going to play Kentucky twice. We know every year they play Missouri twice. They play LSU twice. They play Texas A&M twice. Uh, they'll also play Georgia twice this year. Uh, some of the other notable games uh, this year, they play Alabama on the road, I believe that's right. They play, is it Auburn here in Fayetteville? Is that right, Ethan? Yeah, they, they do play Auburn here at home. Uh, they also play Tennessee at home. That's a pretty strong home schedule. I mean, you play Auburn, you play Kentucky, you play Tennessee in conference, plus some other, I mean, some other SEC teams that, that might move the needle a little bit. Plus you play Duke at home. That That's a, I'd, I'd buy season tickets to that, I think. Yeah, no, that's a that's a pretty stacked SEC lineup. I mean, and it's one of those deals where you I mean, like we said, with the 2024 SEC football schedule, you, you know, might come around and some of those games aren't as big as, you know, looking at them now. But I think, you know, as it stands right now, you probably couldn't have asked for too much better of a <laughs> of a home slate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it speaks to a little bit to. Arkansas's rise under Eric Musselman that the fan fans aren't really complaining about having to play Kentucky twice because <laughs> Arkansas is so competitive and they're they're expected to hang with teams like Kentucky now. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe before uh, they they wouldn't be too happy about getting Kentucky on the schedule twice. A couple of other games that we know about, uh, we, we've reported these on our site. Uh, they're going to play Gardner-Webb at Bud Walton Arena on November 10th. That'll be their second game of the year. They'll play a season opener a few days before that. We don't know who that'll be yet, but I believe November 6th is the first day you can play games this year. We know about November 10th, Gardner-Webb. It has been reported elsewhere uh, that Arkansas is going to play Old Dominion on November 13th at home. And then the only other non-conference game we know about to this point is against Abilene Christian. That game's going to be played on December the 21st. We expect they'll play a game in North Little Rock like they do uh, most years. Um, you know, obviously we know about the battle for Atlantis. We just don't know what the opponents are yet. There's a lot of talk about Arkansas OU in Tulsa. I don't think that game's going to get played this year. Uh, when they signed that contract 
they signed it for two years with the option to extend it to four. But now that OU is going to come into the SEC a year early, I think there might be some hesitation to extend that game and or extend that series in Tulsa and make OU a conference game at a neutral site. I don't think anybody wants to see that happen. And so I don't think they're going to play OU and Tulsa uh, moving forward. Although Hunter Juracek did say recently, I think it was Scotty who got this quote from him at SEC uh, media or the uh, SEC spring meetings down in Destin. It was, uh, you know, he asked him about OU and Tulsa. He said, it may not be OU moving forward, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't play an Oklahoma State in Tulsa moving forward. So there's a seed for you that, you know, maybe there's something going on between Arkansas, Oklahoma State, and Tulsa. Uh, that'd be a lot of fun given uh, both of those teams' proximity uh, to the Tulsa area. Women's basketball also announced their schedule this week, Ethan, and I'm talking about SEC schedule or opponents. And I guess the two big names when it comes to women's basketball is that they're going to play at LSU and they're going to play South Carolina in Fayetteville. Yeah. The big thing for them was, I think the first takeaway, whenever you look at the schedule they got is they don't play either one of those teams twice, which is, um, you know, last year they played LSU twice, who, you know, eventual national champions. And then one of the times they played LSU on the road and then had L South Carolina on the road a couple days later, um, and that was on the same week that they beat Vanderbilt on a buzzer beater. So it was a three-game week for them that was just – they got stomped at South Carolina end of the week. But, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's the first takeaway. Um, just look at their schedule. They only play those teams once. But then I think the second takeaway is they have a very manageable home schedule. Um, they have South Carolina coming in. That's, of course, you know, going to be a tough game. Um, but aside from that, their home slate is Auburn, Georgia, Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, Missouri, Kentucky, Alabama, which are all teams that none of those teams finished in the, I think the top five this past year, maybe I think Alabama might've finished fifth, but um, each of those teams did not, it's not a grueling home schedule, which um, I think that that's, that's good for them this year that it's games at home that are very, very winnable. Um, their away schedule is a little bit tougher though. They go to Tennessee, go to LSU. Um, they go to Ole Miss, who's turned into a, a pretty good team um and they go to texas a&m who is supposed to be one of the most improved teams this year they were i think second to last in the sec last year but then uh won big in the transfer portal and are now projected to make the NCAA tournament so that could be interesting but yeah my those were my main takeaways from from their sec schedule drop and then in the same day they got the news that they'd play at florida state in the acc sec uh, challenge and that's mm -hmm. that's a tough game as well florida state is um they made they made the tournament last year and they were dealing with they they lost to georgia in the first round but they had a couple players out to injury including their leading scorer so who's returning so that could be a tough game for them but yeah i think that they uh they also have a reported game against um ucla coming to bud walton mm -hmm. in um december so they have a pretty they have a pretty uh kind of similar to the men just a, a you know, at a smaller scale, you're not having a Duke coming in, but they have a solid non-conference schedule to pair with a, to pair with, um, you know, the SEC women's basketball slate is always tough. It's a tough conference, but I think it's a big year for them. It's a year that they definitely, um, they have a lot of returners. They haven't gotten anybody from the transfer portal. Um, so Mike neighbors is really relying on, um, development 
and a lot of, and he brought in a pretty solid freshman class too. Talia Scott is actually from Florida. I think it'll be interesting to see that. I talked about that Florida state game. They also go to Florida, her and Samara Spencer on the team are both Florida natives. So I think those will be interesting games to see them go back, but big year for them. I think, um, like I said, it's a very winnable home schedule. And I think that, uh, you know, how they do in those games that are winnable at home will go a long way in determining their NCAA tournament hopes. Yeah. Well, their non-conference schedule is going to continue to kind of trickle out here over the next several weeks. We know they're going to play all four of the teams from the state of Arkansas, but last year women's basketball changed to where they can play uh, 15 non-conference games because they only play 16 conference games. And so uh, it's still got a lot to go scheduling wise for the, for the women. Ethan, you also cover softball. There've been some big softball news this week primarily that Yolanda McRae, who's been Arkansas's longtime hitting coach, uh, she has left the program. She's not going anywhere as of right now, uh, just just resigning from coaching in Arkansas. And then DJ Gasso, who is the son of the legendary Oklahoma softball coach, Patty Gasso, he's going to come in and, and be Arkansas's hitting coach from Utah. Yeah, no, it definitely uh... – initially you know kind of been surfacing that dj gasso might be coming on as as an assistant coach and everybody i think at least i was thinking oh that's who's going to round out now that they have the the new rule going into place in july that um you can have three paid assistants i was thinking oh he rounds out the staff but then Mm -hmm. uh d1 softball reports that yolanda mccray is not gonna be with the program um so i i personally would say that you know if she was she was a good hitting coach for the razorbacks too i mean they have so many program records hitting wise um, since, you know, Courtney came as the head coach and Yolanda followed her from Maryland. Um, but if you're going to be filling in somebody's shoes that did a great job like her, I'd say you could do a lot worse than DJ Gasso, who is, um, he's just well-respected around college softball as being one of the best young hitting coaches around. He took Utah, um, Utah kind of have been comparing it to people in the softball scheme of if the PAC 12 is a very strong softball conference and they're kind of viewed you know how Vanderbilt is to SEC with football. It's a strong football conference, and this is then there's Vanderbilt. That was kind of Utah for a long time, I think, in softball. And then he he came three years ago, and they they were in the Women's College World Series this year. Um, they were the fifth best hitting team in the country. So um, he's very well respected. I think that that helps them with recruiting as well. I mean, um, he is he's very well respected among players, um, just as a hitting coach. So. I think that was a big hire for them. It also, um, I think that just it's going to be exciting to see if they do fill a third paid assistant role now with him on staff. Uh, they have that option now. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see who they uh, maybe select for that. Wouldn't you think that Danielle Gibson, Dan- Danielle Gibson Horton now, that she would be certainly a candidate for that third position? Uh, she's been a volunteer coach the last year at Georgia, they had a lot of success offensively. I think that the people there in Athens would tell you that she had uh, something to do with the offensive success. And then obviously, I mean, she's one of the great, maybe the greatest softball player Arkansas has ever had. Yeah. I think that that's kind of, you know, nothing I've heard um, <laughs> yet, but like, I think that's just kind of the, the prediction. It's like, if, Oh, if anybody's going to fill it, who's a better candidate than her. It's that type of deal. And she, um, she loves Arkansas. She, um, I mean, it was even apparent with her at, while she's at Georgia, she still is, a, 
you know, reposting all this Arkansas stuff. I remember before their uh, their last game uh, with her on the team, she she got a little emotional saying that she's a California girl, but she's really an Arkansas girl now too. So I think that she just um, she just fits the bill. It just would make sense. Uh, so that's kind of like the logical um, the logical approach there, which would be kind of interesting um, if she was on staff. You know, that's a that's a former player who's now uh, she played with a few of the girls who'd be on the team. So for instance, Hannah Gamble, who plays third mm-hmm. base, they were teammates. So it'd be interesting to kind of see that dynamic. I know that mm-hmm. um, a lot of times, you know, players are kind of, they can be more receptive to people who have just recently have done it. And Danielle Gibson was the first Razorback to ever be a twice be an all American. So who's, I, I think that players would definitely respect whatever, um, advice she's giving them she helped georgia this year they were a i think the top home run hitting team in the sec so and i know she worked with their hitters a lot i do think it's interesting how it's shaping up now uh dj gasso so courtney dyfel was on patty gasso's staff at utah uh i think it was 07 yeah Yeah. or at oklahoma Mm -hmm. um sorry for that she was at oklahoma with patty gasso in 07 08 while dj had to have been you know pretty young so it's uh it's just kind of funny seeing that come a little bit full circle. I was, uh, I went to watch Shanice Dells play, uh, the who's arguably the best pitcher in Arkansas softball history. I watched her play in a professional game the other day, and um, and her coach now uh, was a player on that team. Um, with you know, you have Patty Gasso as head coach, and then Melissa Lombardi was their associate coach, who is now the head coach at Oregon. It was just I went back and looked at a media guide from those. Oklahoma teams and what was crazy about it to me is they weren't even a dynasty then at all they were mm-hmm. I think they didn't they made the super regionals or maybe maybe they that was the furthest they'd gone while Courtney was there was a super regional but if you go back and look at a media guide I was just amazed between looking through players assistants you know even support staff how many people that were part of Oklahoma in those years are now head coaches at major softball programs uh Coach Ricketts at Mississippi State was a player on that team. Uh, the head coach at Kennesaw State was an assistant on that team, and it made sense to me now why Kennesaw State comes to a lot of these Arkansas invitationals. It's because hmm. he has a relationship with Courtney. So, uh, yeah, I was just – I just thought it was interesting to see how you now you have DJ Gasso who's coming in, uh, and he was, you know, young whenever Courtney was just, you know, fresh in her coaching career at Oklahoma under Patty Gasso. That reminds me, we, we had a story this week about Dave Van Horn's coaching tree. Uh, the the reason the, the story was written was because Wes Johnson is the new head coach at Georgia, uh, but he also had, had won the national championship Monday night as the pitching coach at LSU. You know, but you look back at uh, well, Van Horn's coaching tree is, is very impressive, but there's a certain point that I think is, is really fascinating, and it's his time at Nebraska. You look at this uh, – Rob Childress was his pitching coach. He's been a, a head coach at Texas A&M, College World Series coach there. Uh, he's the pitching coach at Nebraska again now, just rehired there recently. Uh, you had Mike Anderson, not the basketball coach, but Mike Anderson, baseball coach, who succeeded Dave Van Horn at Nebraska, took them to the College World Series, uh, had a a pretty good run as Nebraska's baseball coach after Van Horn left. He wasn't Van Horn, and I think – uh, that that certainly worked against him. Uh, but then from a player standpoint, you had Will Bolt, who's now the head coach at Nebraska. You had Jay Sirianni, who's now the head coach at Sam Houston State. You had Andy Sawyers, 
who is now the head coach at Southeast Missouri State. He was also a volunteer coach at Nebraska when Van Horn was the coach there. You got R.D. Spees, who's an assistant coach, the pitching coach at Illinois State. You've got Justin Seeley, who's the hitting coach at Oklahoma State, who I think is going to be a head coach one day. And so it, it kind of reminds me of that uh, that OU team that you referenced. Uh, speaking of baseball, uh, we don't know what baseball is going to do with their third paid assistant coach either, but all indications are that Bobby Wernus probably will be elevated into that role. Again, uh, the third paid assistant can go into effect uh, on July 1st. So some of you are going to be listening to this podcast after July 1st. Uh, that that kind of gives you an idea of the, the immediacy that we're talking about. Uh, the, and it's going to be a big deal for not just softball but and baseball, but some other sports that are going to be able to add a third full-time coach too. It just, you know, really one of the things that I can speak from a, a baseball perspective. One of the things that, you know, the coaches have been lobbying for, for years is that, Hey, we've got three paid coaches and we have at least 35 players on the team. So you're looking at about a three and a half to, you know, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, about a 10 and a half to one player to coach ratio. And then you compare that to basketball where you've got what, four, five coaches to 13 players or 15 players in the women's game. You look at that football where you got a head coach and 10 assistants and a team of about a hundred something players. And so it's, it's a little bit different for baseball. And uh, you know, I know the softball, soccer, some of these other sports that are going to benefit from this uh, have faced the same thing. Uh, speaking of baseball, Dave Van Horn spoke earlier this week and he talked about his roster for next season and really gave a good insight into who we think might be back, who won't be back. Everything is still so fluid right now. And so I would caution this because uh, you've got the major league baseball draft coming up and that can, that can change things in a lot of ways. You've, you've still got the transfer portal open that can change things in a lot of ways, but you know, Arkansas has got so many big time players who are draft eligible this year because of the, of, the high school element they've got the top draft or the top signing class in the country 13 of perfect games top 100 players are committed to arkansas i think of that 13 somewhere around eight or nine are ranked by baseball america among the 150 best draft prospects so what happens with those players is going to i think affect what happens to maybe some of the players who are on the team and do they transfer out uh, maybe it affects some of the players who are committed to Arkansas out of the transfer portal right now. Uh, they got a commitment this week from a, a right-handed pitcher out of Indiana named Craig Yoho, who was really, really good relief pitcher for the Hoosiers this year, an NCAA tournament team. He is draft eligible. And so it, it it's so, I mean, there's, there's so much fluidity to this right now. And I don't think we're going to have a real good grasp on exactly who all is going to be back until probably mid to late July the the draft is July 9th through 11th I believe it's right around the it, it's it's coincides with the all-star break and you know then also you've got you know you've got that period that window where the players have to sign and so we'll see what happens uh, from a baseball standpoint but I say all that to say I was intrigued to hear him say that Parker Rowland probably will be back for the Razorbacks next year a catcher, uh, their starting catcher this year was really good defensively, not as good with the bat, but I think catcher is one of those positions where it, it's a defensive first position. Uh, probably going to see Peyton Holt back next year. He's draft eligible, uh, but 
probably not going to be drafted. Uh, ben McLaughlin potentially going to be back next year. I think we all liked what we saw out of his bat. And then, of course, you got the players that you think, you know, you know where you're going to be back. You got your Hagen Smith and you've got uh, your Brady Tiger. Will McIntyre probably going to be back at Arkansas, uh, kind of going around the diamond here a little bit. You got Kendall Diggs probably or obviously will be back, uh, you know, barring something unforeseen. He's, he's only a sophomore. He'll be back probably playing in the field somewhere. They think Peyton Stovall's shoulder is going to heal up to the point that he's going to be able to play second base again for them uh, next year. Caleb Cali is one, I think, to keep an eye on uh, that he might be back at Arkansas next season. He's draft eligible, but as Dave Van Horn explained it this week, it's not all about the money for him. It's about fit. It's about some other things. And so uh, there's a potential that he could be back. All of that is to say, Andrew, that, you know, you and I are at these games every night, just about that's a good core of players that could be back at Arkansas next season. It's not necessarily something that we saw from 2022 to the 23 season because they lost so many players. The players they did get back were obviously for the most part, big time role players for them. Uh, but this feels like it's a, a, a better core maybe than what they had coming back for the 23 season. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think I think building a college baseball roster has to be one of the hardest tasks in, in a, any sport. I just think Exhausting. it's so difficult because it's constantly changing. Uh, and now you've got, you know, NIL transfer portal on top of that. And then, like you said, Arkansas has got the, the number one recruiting class coming in right now. But you don't know how many of those guys are going to make it to campus. And so that could change in, in a heartbeat. And I think Arkansas baseball fans are gonna gonna have their eyes glued to the draft because there's just so many guys that uh, aren't they aren't sure are gonna come back or not and I think obviously the the stud freshman recruits are are gonna be of major interest but to me I think the biggest one uh, is is probably Caleb Cali because I think he makes the biggest difference in that lineup uh, if he stays or leaves. Yeah, I mean he's definitely a player that you stick in the middle of your batting order and you build a batting order around in part. You know, I mean regardless of whether he hits third, fourth, or fifth. It's it's a key piece to your batting order if he comes back. You look at some of these transfers they've gotten, by the way. I just want to mention a few of these players. Uh, Jack Wagner is a first baseman from Tarleton State in Texas. Uh, over 300 hitter. Uh, seems like a real good player who actually was at Kansas before he went to Tarleton State. Arkansas has has really been going to Kansas getting a lot of players out of KU. We talked about this on, on our, our baseball podcast this year, just the number of players that have been plucked off that KU roster from say like 2021 to 22 at other schools. I mean, you had Maui Ahuna at Tennessee this year, obviously Tavian Dozenberger at Arkansas. Auburn's first baseman was from KU. TCU had a, a one of their top relief pitchers was from KU. And now you got Arkansas going and getting Jack Wagner, who used to be at KU. They also got Stone uh, Hewlett, a pitcher from Kansas, who's uh, committed out of the transfer market. Uh, but Jack Wagner is is one of the, I think, one of the big transfer names in this class for the Razorbacks. Uh, Ty Wilmsmeyer is another one out of Missouri, center fielder uh, for the Tigers the last few years. Uh, again, a, a, an over 300 hitter. You know, so you've got a couple of veteran hitters who are coming in here to Arkansas. And we've seen guys come in who have shown that they can hit elsewhere and it's translated well, whether it be Chris Lanzilli, whether it be Jared Wagner, uh, Michael Turner to an extent, even though he hit better at Arkansas than he had hit uh, when he was at Kent State. 
Uh, Texas Tech has got a catcher named Hudson White who is transferring into Arkansas. I, you know, again, they, they're going to get rolling back. And so we'll see. Maybe there's a, a, a plan for him to play a different position. I'm not sure. And then I would say, you know, maybe the, the biggest commit that they've gotten out of the transfer portal, or at least the most high profile. And I know I'm going to, I'm going to botch the name, but I'm going to try anyway. I believe it's Wahiwa Aloy. He is a shortstop from Sacramento State, grew up in Hawaii. He was a freshman All-American this season, and he was the WAC freshman of the year. 376 batting average, 14 home runs, 15 doubles, five triples, an OPS of uh, 1089, 46 RBI, 69 runs scored. The glove is not quite at the level of the bat, at least in his freshman year, but we've seen guys come in and, and their glove gets better working with, you know, these infield coaches, whether it be Dave Van Horn or Bobby Wernis or whoever, uh, that's a big name. I feel like for the Razorbacks uh, to, to get him to come in. It'd be in the basketball program, football program and baseball, especially, it just seems like all three of those teams don't miss very often on transfers. Like, especially of late, I think just the majority of the transfers that these guys are bringing in just seem to either meet expectations, if not exceed them. Yeah, you know who doesn't miss on transfers? The track team. I mean, <laughs> you think about their national championship right. teams this year, uh, just transfer after transfer. And two of those, Britton Wilson, uh, well, I, I guess Britton Wilson is the only transfer, uh, but she's a, a Bowerman Award finalist that was announced this week. And then uh, Jaden Hibbert, a freshman from uh, Jamaica. Uh, he's a, a finalist for the Bowerman. It's the first time the track team has ever had two Bowerman finalists. It's also called the Heisman of track and field. A little bit of an aside. I just thought of that as you said that about the transfers. But you're right. I think, you know, now baseball doesn't get every transfer they want. They went after Paul Skeens last year. They didn't get Paul Skeens. They went after some of these other high profile. But I do think that on the whole, they get a lot of the transfers that they want to have. And, and I really think that Wagner, Wilmsmeyer, and Aloy are three big-time transfers, and and I would put uh, Yoho in that category too. Although, unlike the others, he he does have that draft component to where you know maybe he gets drafted and he doesn't come to campus. Um, it's this, this is a good transfer class, I feel like, for Arkansas. And what we've seen over the last few years is that I think maybe even more so, Andrew, than the fact that they get the big-name transfers or maybe in some cases, not big name transfers. I guess what I'm trying to say is from a transfer standpoint, they get transfers who come in and they fit the culture and they fit in, you know, and, and they, they perform, whether it's Trevor Ezell, whether it's Jared Wagner, Michael Turner, Chris Lanzilli, you can go on and on. Tavian Josenberger, they've had this five, six year run, whatever it is that Arkansas has been on where they've been so good and you know so high up there in the national conversation transfers have really helped fuel that run and they've done a good job of going out and finding guys that fit maybe even more so than the high profile yeah i think that's maybe the first thing dave van horn brings up when you talk about what he looks for in a transfer is is not necessarily the the talent but the right fit and they want to bring in guys that that are going to be good teammates and, and play the the Razorback way in a sense. And I think obviously they they do a great job of getting those guys in. And and I think that's probably priority number one when they go looking in the portal. Yeah, Bubba Carpenter and I have talked about this a lot. I think they're a really good evaluator and they're able to kind of find some of these diamonds in the rough. I don't know that everybody was beating down the door of Jared Wagner and turned out 
Arkansas went, they got him. He turned out to be a really good player. Tavian Josenberger, the same way uh, for this year's team. So that's kind of where we are with baseball. You know, we're going to learn more about their schedule in the coming months. Uh, but really right now it's all about what does this roster building look like? And and that's going to be one of the things I think that we're paying t- attention to a lot during the month of July. July is the only month of the year that we don't have a Razorback sporting event. Not one. There's not a game at all. August comes around, you get soccer, you get volleyball, you get cross country football season. The drumbeat is going up to, you know, the kickoff the, the first weekend in September. Uh, there's nothing in July, but it's still going to be an interesting July. A lot of things to keep track of. And, and we're going to do that at our website. We mentioned football. July is always a big month for, uh, or, I'm sorry, baseball, but uh, July is also a big month for football recruiting. Uh, you've got the Major League Baseball draft, obviously, in the middle part of the month, uh, toward the end of July. You get that four days of SEC football media day, which I think is probably the most overhyped event on the calendar, uh, but people seem to love it. And uh, Sam Pittman will be in Nashville this year. That's where SEC football media days are going to be. And so I tell you all that to tell you, we're going to have plenty of coverage at wholehogsports.com. Uh, over the next few weeks we hope you'll join us there and we appreciate you joining us today on the whole hog podcast be back with another one of these before too long of course the whole hog football podcast will kick off uh, in august for ethan westerman and andrew joseph i'm matt jones and we appreciate you joining us have a happy fourth of july stay safe and we'll see you next time the proceeding has been a production of wholehogsports.com Look for our latest podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast store. And visit us anytime at wholehogsports.com for the latest news and commentary.